Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Rishi Sunak vows low traffic neighborhoods review. Michael Gove rejects M&S Oxford Street demolition in watershed moment for retrofit. HS2 rated unachievable by the government's infrastructure watchdog. And new analysis shows how race and income affect the quality of the air you breathe. My name is Poppy Waring. I produce The Lundown. And I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top UK architecture news. Welcome to The Lundown. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Merlin Fulcher. Merlin is an architectural journalist and regular host of this show. Welcome back to the show, Merlin. Thanks, Poppy. It's such an honour to be here alongside you this morning. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has ordered what is being described as a formal review of low traffic neighbourhood or LTN schemes after he accused Labour of being, quote, anti-motorist and slated Keir Starmer as a political opportunist. Open City Chief Executive Phineas Harper wrote an opinion piece in The Guardian last week investigating the capital's complicated relationship with pollution, which is leading to increasing political polarisation. Following the Conservatives' unexpected win at the recent Uxbridge by-election, which some say was linked to the opposition to the London Mayor's expansion of the ultra-low emission zone, the government has pledged to review council-backed LTNs and is even questioning other green policies more widely. Though present in various forms for decades, LTNs were expanded massively during the pandemic as more funding for the schemes was made available to local governments. Since then, they have sparked a new culture war, which has been reflected in politics in recent years, with the Conservatives pinning their hopes on pro-car policies. However, as Finn writes in their article, quote, Ultimately opposing traffic restrictions, though popular with a vocal minority of disgruntled drivers, is simply not a big vote winner. While the government's recent move to review LTNs has been seeded on the idea that they increase congestion and hinder access to key services, a recent study from Imperial College actually found they significantly reduced both traffic and air pollution without displacing the problem to nearby streets. Reports also indicate the government is considering plans which could limit local council powers to implement 20 mile per hour zones. However, Number 10 has stressed there are no plans to act on this currently. This all comes as the Prime Minister announced the government will grant more than 100 new North Sea oil and gas licences, claiming they were, quote, entirely consistent with reaching net zero by 2050. So, Merlin... Why are these low-traffic neighbourhoods proving to be so controversial and how have they become so politicised? Well, it is such a fascinating story and it really says a lot about like the role of the contemporary politician in the age we live in. I mean, we are facing enormous existential threats, stuff we talk about on London week in, week out. Obviously, housing crisis, uh, the shift to net zero, the climate crisis. This is massive stuff. And yet what we've seen in the past few days is... 
politicians and the entire kind of media political apparatus focusing in on what is effectively in comparison, quite a trivial issue, quite a small short-term inconvenience which relates to the introduction of these low-traffic neighbourhoods. And it's worth thinking a bit about exactly what a low-traffic neighbourhood is. So what these are, are small interventions in our streetscapes. Effectively, mostly they're like bollards or planters which block off certain streets usually streets which were rat runs which were potentially places where there was more pollution than there needed to be um, where it was having a detrimental impact on people's domestic lives in those streets they're typically going into places like that when that comes in yes it causes an inconvenience for the motorist okay and that inconvenience is what then shifts behavioral patterns okay so you realise that it is no longer convenient to nip in the car for two minutes to drive to the shop to get some milk. And you think, OK, I'll just walk. OK, I'll just get an umbrella because it's raining rather than doing that little trip in the car. So it is inconvenient and you can see why that is an issue for some people. But it is a short term inconvenience that brings about long term gains. In particular, it's been shown through study after study that low traffic neighbourhoods reduce traffic within the LTN it's down 50% and in the surrounding boundaries the streets around it it's also down 13% and as a corollary to that that means less air pollution that means less uh, road traffic incidents you know a safer environment for everyone so clearly um, this is an inconvenient thing in a short term with massive gains uh, in the long term and this is really what like it boils down to what politics is about or what it should be about because really we need leadership from politicians we need meaningful sacrifices that make our lives better and we need that kind of strength and conviction to get through it and we're not really seeing that instead what we're seeing is a kind of escapism and what's really telling is the way this was announced it was um it was an interview in the sunday papers and there's a photo of rishi sunak and it's captioned and he put it on the twitter as well um thinking about freedom sitting in Margaret Thatcher's rover, okay? Obviously, he's setting himself up as being against and what he calls anti-motorist policies. But rather than like doing anything really radical that would help the lives of people who are struggling to get around, like instead it's focusing in on a really, really, really trivial thing. Um, and it kind of reflects like the powerlessness of the contemporary uh, politician. Um, but it also, it's a kind of retromania with this image of Margaret Thatcher and also like the, yeah, a day later announcing the oil and sea gas licenses. It's like, let's hark back to the 1980s. But that is hollow. All you're doing is offering people a sense of security. Like who doesn't want a sense of security? But a sense of security isn't necessarily what you need at a time of massive existential crisis. Now is not the time to be the ostrich with its head in the sand, right? Um, and and there's also it's just something quite ironic about someone whose own job security, there's a general election next year, their own job security is on the line, offering a sense of security uh, to the voters. Well, you, you, you outlined there some of the reasons why LTNs are such a beneficial thing in these areas. I mean, it seems like LTNs are quite a good thing. Do you think the reason why there's been so much focus on this debate um, by the media in recent weeks is kind of almost a way to distract the conversation away from the other news which came through, which was that the Prime Minister um, granted all of these North Sea oil and gas licences, something that is a major step backwards 
climate campaigners would say from achieving our uh, our net zero goals in the long term. Like, what role do you think the media are playing in sort of reframing this climate change debate to something that's uh, trivialised as an inconvenience or breaking it down into an anti-motorist, anti-people debate rather than the wider debate around how do we uh, become more environmentally sustainable? It's it's an interesting observation to make. And if one was being very cynical, they could say, yes, this is about distracting people with a, a topic which is easy to get into. But fundamentally, it's it's quite these topics are quite sort of bleak <laughs> reflections on the, the challenges of contemporary urban living or, you know, the compromises that one has to make in order to get by. And it is hard to get people hopeful and inspired by something as grand as um, the shift to zero carbon. I mean, that requires a leap of imagination. That requires a kind of culture of futuristic thinking, um, which which also has its own pitfalls. You know, a utopia can very quickly become a dystopia. So this this review of LTNs would would potentially strip funding for the implementation of new LTNs. However, um, people have pointed out that the majority of LTNs currently are in in London, where the LTM system works slightly differently. So the government uh, does not allocate cash for walking and cycling schemes in London because this power has been devolved to Transport for London. So there's a question over how effective this uh, stripping of funding will actually be on the implementation of LTNs in the, in the capital where most uh, LTNs currently are and where, where most L- new LTNs are likely to go in. So do you think this story could just be a load of hot air? Like what, what could come out of this, do you think? Yeah, it's almost as if this is a policy dreamt up by a recent graduate at two in the morning who really doesn't know any of the details about how something like this works. In London, it's devolved to TfL and TfL has its own troubled funding, uh, but it is making priorities around LTNs and it's making budget stretch um, in local authorities I mean local authorities have got the worst of all worlds they, ha- they have to do all the very difficult things involved in a municipality like collecting rubbish cleaning the streets running the schools administering public health in the local area and um, policing and so on and they have like never enough money in fact increasingly less money <laughs> in order to do it so the local authorities everybody is in a really squeezed position they are struggling to do the statutory duties they have to do. And um, along comes the government with this sort of thing of like, yeah, we're going to review your power to do this uh, without any teeth whatsoever. It's basically a a Sunday paper story. It's a kind of like legacy creating story. Like the image of the prime minister in the car is retromania. Like it has no real policy teeth whatsoever. Um, It doesn't really gain anything, doesn't achieve anything big. It's... A distraction in the most epic sense and people love it people on all political sides of the spectrum are like railing on social media about it uh so ltns weren't the only thing under threat uh from the prime minister this week uh it seems that plans are in place to restrict or limit the powers that local authorities have to implement 20 mile per hour zones um again L- number 10 haven't confirmed this it just seems to be a plan in the pipeline at the moment. Are 20 mile per hour zones something that could become a political issue in the months to come, do you think, Merlin? 
20 mile per hour zones is is quite a new policy uh, in a lot of places um, and seem to have made like no um, negative kind of impact on the motorist and definitely a positive impact uh, on streetscapes, on cyclists, on pedestrians. Like there's still a long way to go, but a 20 mile per hour zone, they really do not appear to be controversial in any way whatsoever. Yeah, Rishi Sunak was saying like, uh, you know, this is about freedom. Okay, well, the freedom to drive your car very quickly becomes being stuck in your car in a traffic jam. Like, it very quickly becomes enormous payments that you have to make to facilitate a car, but very quickly becomes stuck in a car-enabled lifestyle, which is making your health worse and the health of your community worse, right? So real freedom for the people, whether they're in cities or in rural areas or anywhere, is having decent infrastructure that allows you to use any kind of transport, whether that's your feet, your bicycle, your electric scooter whatever um to get around in a safe responsible empowering emancipatory way right that's what real freedom looked like um but that's complicated so let's instead just like focus on 20 mile per hour zones um like in these places where cars are so necessary there are 20 mile per hour zones they're often like you know outside a school on a major a road that happens to pass through the middle of a town that makes sense okay that is fair or in like the little tiny strip of shops that's just surviving in the town with an enormous road booming through it so you put a 20 mile per hour zone in okay that I don't think in those areas that is controversial. What is controversial is the really dangerous 60 mile per hour road where members of your community have been injured or died. You know, um, there are towns where they're only accessible by you know horrific infrastructure, which where people have to put their lives on the line, driving their own car, taking entire like individual responsibility. That doesn't seem fair because there isn't a decent rail link or a frequent bus route. In cities, I mean, to be frank, the, the real issue for most people is the cost of transport. If you're driving a car at 20 miles per hour, less than 20 miles per hour, you're going to be saving a lot of money on fuel compared to 30 miles per hour. What most people care about is cost, not about how fast they can get there. Michael Gove has vetoed controversial plans by Pilbara and Partners to demolish and redevelop Marks and Spencer's flagship Oxford Street store, overruling a planning inspector's verdict. The AJ reported that the Leveling Up Housing and Community Secretary said the Pilbara and Partners 10-storey replacement scheme conflicted with policies on heritage and design and also specifically highlighted the embodied carbon impact and waste involved in the plan. Although the project had been approved by both Westminster City Council and London Mayor Sadiq Khan, the application was called in by Gove last summer. In his decision letter, Gove said he disagreed with MS's argument that there was no viable and deliverable alternative to demolition, arguing that the project was not compatible with the transition to a low-carbon future and the need to reuse existing buildings and materials. A new building would have released around 40,000 tonnes of CO2 into the atmosphere in terms of the immediate effect. The letter said, quote, The Secretary of State is not persuaded that it is safe to draw the same conclusion reached by the inspector, namely that, quote, there is no viable and deliverable alternative, which leads the inspector's overall conclusion that there is unlikely to be a meaningful refurbishment of the buildings. In a fiery response to the decision, MS Chief Executive Stuart Matchin called Gove's decision, quote, unfathomable and described the suggestion that it was made on sustainability grounds as, quote, nonsensical. 
So Merlin, what's this all about? The story has been followed closely by both the architectural and wider media, as well as several times on this show since M&S won planning permission to demolish and rebuild it in November 2021. Why has this sparked such a major public row? Yeah, it is an absolutely fascinating story. In, in architectural media, in, in, in the wider media, you do have these stories that come along every now and again, and it's about the conservation of a building, a building threatened with redevelopment. And on the one side, you have like a beautiful building, you know, imagine like famously in New York, you had the New York Penn, Penn Station, you know, this beautiful building uh, that then becomes this big cause that loads of people rally around to save it from demolition. And what often ends up happening in the state in New York uh, is that building gets demolished, okay? And it gets replaced with, you know, a massive concert venue or something like that. Um, now, what's really, really, really interesting about this M&S one is that this is a building which has united quite a broad segment of um, these campaign groups and the media and other people. You had people like the 20th Century Society, Save Britain's Heritage. You also had the Architects Journal, uh, all of the architecture media, and also plus like you know, comment pieces in, in the national papers, Evening Standard. So, it was broad like it was there was like a real public upswelling against this proposal uh, the proposal obviously to demolish the sort of art deco corner MS on oxford street that probably no one shops in anymore uh, with uh, an MS with some offices on top of it i mean that's a success by the campaigners okay but then there's another way of looking at it you know this is a decision by michael gove what do we know about michael gove i mean we were discussing not so long ago on the show uh, the tulip in the city of london so this was like a giant observation tower ridiculously controversial right next to uh, the gherkin designed by the same architect norman foster it split opinion some people wanted it a lot of people didn't and michael gove uh, weighed in in this powerful position in government was able to arbitrate on it and he said no uh, embody carbon doesn't make sense and that was also what's interesting about this story um, that you do did have that strong environmental angle on embodied carbon which hadn't always been so powerfully articulated in previous conservation battles i mean this was really retrofit and embodied carbon which is you know the cost of demolishing something that already stands and then rebuilding again construction is insanely carbon intensive just to remind everyone and I mean, I would just say on our last show, we were discussing the controversies around the department for leveling up, giving back 1.9 billion that it hadn't spent building affordable housing. If you're almost being super cynical, you could say, you know, here's Michael Gove taking the news agenda to a, a space which potentially is more receptive in the public opinion. There is a general election coming up next year. If the Conservative Party lose that election, somebody will need to lead the Conservative Party in opposition. Could this be building up kind of credentials of being a breath of fresh air, a vote winner, uh, a populist, uh, somebody who's in tune with green and conservation and heritage concerns. I don't know. Mm, that's an interesting point you made there. Um, but then looking back at both the, the M&S uh, store and the Tulip, as you mentioned, these are two very high profile stories that have gone beyond the architectural media and entered the sort of general conversation in this country. Do you think this is really these two decisions are really shifting the goalposts when it comes to embodied carbon considerations and really moving the conversation on? Yeah, I think that's a fascinating question. And it's, it's really interesting uh, to look at the quote uh, in your introduction from Stuart Matchin. And he says he describes Michael Goh's decision as unfathomable. 
interesting unfathomable well you know stuff is getting quite unfathomable right now okay you know we've got like unprecedented heat waves across southern europe we've got an insane housing crisis here nothing stacks up we got to get a bit imaginative i mean for example this project was to demolish the existing building and there would still be a store but there'd be loads of offices above it if those loads of offices were built MS stood to gain hundreds of millions of pounds okay so like that is a revenue stream but it's not a very imaginative revenue stream it's not a very i would argue potentially resilient one considering all the stories you're seeing about canary wharf and the kind of collapse of demand for office space surely it'd be much more imaginative to build some affordable sustainable housing on oxford street you know where your key workers are going to live above the shop i mean why like the fathoms the fathoms are calling you know discover the depths like you know let's like unwrap the imagination and get going so yeah the embodied carbon consideration does appear to be shifting the goalposts but we still need uh, from our leadership from our decision makers uh, a willingness to embrace uh, the new opportunity Mm, mm. and a lot of this is is sort of being framed around the sort of death of the high street which has been going on for years i mean even before the pandemic hit and uh, oxford street is is not immune to that either i mean we've covered on this show how american sweet shops are sort of gradually spreading up oxford street like a like a rash um, and Time Out reported this week on a new initiative from Westminster Council, which will actually allow small businesses to open on the sites of, of shut down candy shops. Uh, they will allow small businesses to do this rent free for the first six months, which, you know, for the most famous high street in the country, it's, it seems like quite a good deal. Um, Merlin, do you think that the sort of injection of independent businesses potentially onto Oxford Street will help bring some life back into the area? Yes, absolutely. Frankly, it would would certainly bring me to the area. It's in a a superb place. It's world famous. There's lots of nice things around it. I mean, the problem with Oxford Street is it it sadly does seem to have been like quite doomed over the last decade. Like what you're seeing now from Westminster City Council is the kind of curated approach to retail that like people have been doing everywhere else for ages all of the other major shopping centers have been like bringing in stores on discounted rates having pop-ups having weird things that bring people in i remember going to conferences about regent street and oxford street 10 years ago where people would talk about oh you know the big problem is most of the traffic is like van drivers who are lost or something like that we need to pedestrianize it now you know where's the pedestrianization of oxford street uh there's some new proposals out for some kind of semi something um like it's like a farce like it's been going on for so long but that you, know, you can't just pedestrianize like a failing space like definitely put in all these independent shops then pedestrianize it uh, and also while you're at it um like put in some decent amenities like put in some public toilets that aren't like four stores up at the back of a department store um like put in benches like put in all the stuff that people can get in your rival big retail spaces it's not complicated The contentious HS2 project has been rated as, quote, unachievable by the government's own infrastructure watchdog. The Infrastructure and Projects Authority's annual report was picked up by the national media this week after it slapped a red warning on the initial two phases of the high-speed rail project, which will run from London to Birmingham and finally on to Crewe. According to the IPA's evaluation of the scheme, which the government has already spent £20 billion on, the, quote, successful delivery of the project appears to be unachievable. 
The report went on, quote, there are major issues with the project definition, schedule, budget, quality and all benefits of delivery, which at this stage do not appear to be manageable or resolvable. The project may need to rescope and or its overall viability reassessed, end quote. Since its inception, the highly controversial project has been strongly opposed by wildlife and environmental activists who have campaigned to preserve the five internationally protected wildlife sites, 693 local wildlife sites, 108 ancient woodlands and 33 legally protected sites of special scientific interest, all of which would be destroyed or irreparably damaged by the project. In 2015, an initial budget of £55.7 billion was set for the whole project, which would have taken the new line up to Manchester. However, in 2019, this ballooned to an estimated cost of between £72 and £98 billion, a sum which will now be much higher when current inflation is taken into account. However, the AJ reported that Grimshaw's London Euston HS2 station could be shortened to seven platforms, according to a leaked internal HS2 document. This follows developments in March, where Grimshaw was believed to have stood down its 90-person design team on the Euston terminus after Transport Secretary Mark Harper announced a pause on sections of HS2 over spiralling costs. A Freedom of Information request made by the AJ previously revealed that HS2 had already shelled out £289 million on design fees for a, series of Euston, uh, for a series of Euston concepts over eight years. So Merlin, what's this all about? Is it a wise move to continue with this project, now deemed unachievable, when there is so much existing infrastructure in dire need of investment and upgrading? So the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> this is absolutely worth going ahead with this. And it's fascinating because you just talked about this 289 million that's been spent like designing Euston Station over and over and over again. If that if anywhere near that amount had been simply spent on communicating clearly and accessibly the benefits of HS2 and what HS2 actually is, um, this question would be unequivocal. Now, HS2 as a project isn't just about HS2. It's about freeing up capacity on the entire West Coast mainline, which is this the most important rail line in the country, connecting all your major West Coast industrial cities from London up to Glasgow, right? And it's congested. So HS2 isn't just about you know, building building a super fast connection between Birmingham and London or crew in London. It's about freeing up capacity on the existing infrastructure. Um, and what that looks like, obviously HS2 itself, that's going to carry 500,000 passengers a day. Um, but also it will mean space for 144 extra freight trains per day, which is enough to transport more than two and a half million more lorries worth of cargo on our railways each year. Uh, for some context, there's only about 500,000 lorries on the roads in the UK. So if you're, you know, if you're on a motorway and you're thinking, oh, there's an awful lot of lorries here overtaking each other, this is a pain. HS2 completed has the potential to take two and a half million of those journeys off the motorways and also make them far more environmentally sustainable. OK, so there's massive benefits and they need to be more clearly communicated because too often HS2 is seen as a thing in isolation. Um, and it's not a zero-sum game. We need this and we need other infrastructure improvements. Mm. You talked about how a lot of industry will benefit from this with uh, cargo being able to be transported along the, the new line. Um, 
who do you think this ultimately this whole project will benefit i mean there's a lot of speculation on how much it will cost to actually use the line so do you see it will be connecting the first phase of it will be connecting london and and birmingham and and i think the 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 idea is that you know make birmingham much much better connected to the financial hub of this country do you think the everyday person in, in Birmingham is really going to benefit from this scheme? Or do you see a lot of the benefits going to big industry? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And obviously, I can't necessarily speak for the everyday person in Birmingham. You know, I, I live and work in London. Um, certainly when I have used uh, West Coast mainline train, if I've been doing it for work reasons, my main issue has normally been the cost of the train ticket and also the poor internet connection on the train. Now, I mean, this is a very kind of big scale thinking, but yeah, the issue is transport is too expensive. If HS2 unlocks economic growth um, that may enriches all of us in a society, then that would, in the very like grand scale of things, should raise wages, decrease costs and make HS2 a more affordable offer for all of the people living along the line. So it genuinely is uh, emancipatory for people at all levels of society. You know, that is it is quite a grand vision which like, ultimately underpins projects like this. But I would say, look at London, Elizabeth Line, that was in the sights for being cancelled during the comprehensive spending review of um, 2010. It wasn't cancelled, it went ahead. Elizabeth Line is an enormous success. Far more people use it than was predicted and um, is also led to increased use on other lines rather than taking passengers off other lines. So, like, you know, it can work. You just have to believe in it. Uh, so this isn't the only big infrastructure story in the news at the moment. We are recording this from North Greenwich and all around us, actually, you can see the development that's already underway for the Silvertown Tunnel. Um, it goes under our office. Which goes under our office. <laughs> um, so in the news this week, famous blogger Ian Visits published TfL's designs for a shuttle bus, which is uh, going to carry bikes through the tunnel as cyclists will not actually be able to to, to go through themselves. So, Merlin, what do you, first of all, what do you make of the Silvertown Tunnel? I mean, that's an expansive question, but what do you make of this new development? And what do you make of these new plans, which have been the subject of so much criticism online? Yeah, it's a fascinating, uh, it's a fascinating question. I mean, the Silvertown Tunnel is enormously uh, controversial and um, it is kind of like baffling that like there is money and political will to build a massive road tunnel, heavy engineering project, very carbon intensive, which then locks us into like decades, if not centuries of more carbon intensive forms of transport um, when, um, you know, some kind of nice walking or cycling infrastructure is like beyond the wits of the system and you know it's worth comparing like just over in uh norway in bergen they've just opened a multi-million pound tunnel under a mountain just for cyclists and pedestrians and like think about that like if we had an amazing beautiful cycle pedestrian tunnel like what kind of um social cultural economic benefits would that unlock over a lifetime like it would be completely transformational in the way things like the millennium bridge uh, has been transformational for that bit of central london you know if you come down here, like, I absolutely love this area. Like, it's such a fun place to work. Um, but, you know, there is a massive motorway there. And there's loads of cars uh, that want to go through the Blackwall Tunnel on one side and on the other side. Our office used to be on the other side. And you remember all the traffic jams and all the horns blaring. And, um, you know, it's... <sighs> This is a major um, economic zone because of our mode of development relies on a lot of like 
wealthy buyers you know turns out wealthy people like cars i can sort of suspect where the where, why the like the landowners and you've got to remember also there's an enormous amount of land in public ownership in this area um might support a project like this um and there's also the case that there's an awful lot of like works, traffic, um, construction workers and so on, uh, goods, vehicles that go through that tunnel. Um, it does just seem to be like sort of pushing the problem further and further away. You know, you build that Silvertown tunnel, that Silvertown tunnel is going to be insanely congested at some point. Um, you know, it just plugs onto the existing infrastructure, which is already full of traffic. So this idea that that's going to solve the problem to some might be fanciful. People of black or mixed ethnicities and poorer people face the worst air pollution, according to a new analysis published by City Hall. This was reported in The Guardian this week. This latest publication pulls together research from the last few years, laying out the extent of the air quality crisis facing communities. One survey by the NGO Global Black Maternal Health highlighted a distinct lack of awareness of air pollution risks amongst black mothers. Agnes Agipong, the founder of the charity, said, quote, In the UK, black women are nearly four times more likely to die during pregnancy and experience twice the rate of stillbirths compared with white women. The report aimed to elevate the voices of black women who were disproportionately exposed to illegal levels of air pollution, but largely missing from conversations around clean air, end quote. The analysis also emphasised the stark disparity in air quality between the richest and most deprived areas across England, with the most air pollution found in the poorest and least white communities. A 2019 study of more than 300,000 people across the UK found that lung conditions caused by air pollution were found disproportionately in people with lower income. Professor Anna Hansel, who led the UK lung health study, said, quote, Worryingly, we found that air pollution had much larger effects on people from lower income households. Air pollution had approximately twice the impact on lung function decline and three times the increased COPD, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, risk on lower income participants compared to higher income participants who had the same air pollution exposure. The report detailed possible causes for this disparity, which included poorer housing, worse indoor air quality, poor nutrition and air pollution exposure at work for those lower incomes. So Merlin, this analysis draws together some compelling research which highlights the air quality inequality seen across London and the rest of the UK. Why is this something the built environment sector should be paying attention to? Well, put simply... The organisation of our built environment, our society, our housing, certainly, and our infrastructure, it is pathological. It is pathological. It's rooted on this idea that if you're rich, you can live in a healthy environment. That if you've got everything in your favour, you've got great health, great power, whatever, great money, all the resources at your disposal, you should also be privileged by having the cleanest environment to live in. Right? Is that fair? How is that fair? It's not fair at all. Yeah, it does like link back to like luxury housing, like this whole idea of prestige, this whole idea that basically what's happening in the late 20th century, which is like the powerful, wealthy, bourgeois, upper classes would 
would basically escape the city and they would go and live in the suburbs and they would drive through the city in a polluting car and on a red route and like make everybody like breathe deep on the fumes of their healthy lifestyle uh, living in an executive box in the, in the suburbs in Surrey or something like that. It, it's it's pathological and like it's um, and it's despairing and it happens now like it happens architecturally like in affordable housing schemes like the, the affordable homes will be put lower nearer the busy road they'll be put next to the railway track with the noise pollution uh you know they'll they'll build the affordable units above the electricity transformer you know it will they were all kinds of like just like really despairing decisions which are which are made um if you want to read more about the topic uh it's called environmental racism there are all kinds of studies about the sighting of like big industrial concerns clusters of cancer this is here and around the world by the way like yeah this happens this is a real pattern of economic development and also built environment uh yeah the phrasing of it and like it's um it's terrifying and it's really it's good that this is being called out in this study and it certainly is an issue which is gaining more traction certainly in policy with issues around air pollution and so on um but you know air pollution is just the start like this is there are so many levels mm, i i think this was a really in- interesting story because it does it pulls together a lot of uh of crises facing the world more widely at the moment with the climate crisis and you know the pollution aspect of this uh but also the health crisis it's causing and um the poverty crisis that is being particularly felt in these areas so i think it these stories are increasingly coming out which which uh, show how interconnected these issues are. Yet it, it seems quite frustrating that one, this story hasn't been that widely covered compared to other stories we've covered today, like the issue of LTNs. We, we're certainly seeing more of them in the media right now. But does it, what role do you think the media has in sort of shifting these conversations on to look forward into the future? Well, you need to be able to tell uncomfortable truths, right? And like, yeah, this is it is clear that if you're black or from a minority ethnic background, you are more exposed to pollution, right? So imagine, in, in, say, in the house you live in, right? So say you're you're this person looking for a home, right? Um, there are limited social housing options. You can be on the waiting list for a very very long time. Um, so you're going to have to go to a private rent. Now, private rent is not a very regulated sphere. What do you have to do to get a private rent these days? You have to impress the estate agent. You have to impress a private landlord. Um, so. You know, is is there a bit of racism in that? Are private landlords being discriminatory about who they give the tenancies to and the rents to? Um, you know, so it's, it's economic, but also there's potentially that aspect at play as well. Does anybody want to talk about this? Does do people want to challenge the, the private renter uh, and and hold up a light to that and say you might not think that you're a discriminatory person, but the way you're letting your flat has does have these consequences because you only want to rent your flat to a certain type of tenant and this is a thing that because of the scale of the the private housing market and the role that it plays in a city like london um you know inevitably potentially there's there's a consequence there does anyone want to talk about it i don't know right finally moving on to the culture section um we've just got one thing to talk about today um which is a new play at the national theater from the award-winning author jillian slovo uh the play called grenfell in the words of survivors uh features sort of verbatim dialogue from 10 interviews 
uh, with 10 of the survivors. So at the end of the play, apparently actors silently lead the audience out of the playhouse into the night, holding versions of their paper mache hearts, which have, have really come to symbolise the um, the West London community's solidarity and loss. Um, Slovo, the, the writer of this play, uh, she gained international recognition with her novel Red Dust, which is set in South Africa's post-apartheid Truth and Reconciliation Commission says uh, that people must be jailed for what happened at Grenfell Tower. Um, I've read a couple of reviews for this. It sounds like a really interesting play and I definitely will be booking tickets to go and see that. So that's currently on at the National Theatre and I believe there are free tickets available for people who live in um, North Kensington. Definitely an important show at the National, uh, worth going to see and it's so important that... um, interviews with 10 of the survivors take the centre of this piece. Art and theatre are transformational and they are, it's a place where people's views should be amplified, those views should be amplified with that transformational power of theatre. Yeah, I think it it can be incredibly powerful and from what I've read about this play, it does justice to the not only the the tragedy itself but the the run-up to it and the full the, the it covers the inquiry as well so I'm, I'm really interested to see um see how they covered that Merlin it's been a pleasure to to host a show with you I've really enjoyed having this discussion with you it's been really interesting um where should listeners go to keep up to speed with your writing um, well, I, I write for the Architects Journal and Architectural Review, um, so both of those websites. And also I've got my Twitter handle, which is at Merlin Fulcher. Well uh, worth a follow. Well worth a follow, thank you, um, which is probably where I'm most active. Um, but also do like sign up for the Open City newsletter, uh, lots going on there. And also, if you're feeling really adventurous, check out Open City's TikTok channel. Um, Definitely worth a follow there. Yep. Yeah. And um, also uh, we do cross-post it all onto Insta as well. So um, yeah, so much great stuff we're putting up a new video tour of a cool building pretty much every week (laughs) (laughs) you've been listening to the lundown a podcast from open city made in association with the 20th century society and the london society if you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've covered we recommend subscribing to the architects journal which reports on all these issues and many more to get early ad-free access to The Lundown and to support the important educational work of Open City, please become a friend of the charity today. The link is in the show notes. The Lundown is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Merlin Fulcher, Finn Harper, Cyber Chadder and Fran Williams. The editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities more open, accessible and equitable. <laughs> <laughs>